Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast still playing sensible world of soccer. My name is Cameron McDonald and I've spent the last three years working in FA Licensed Intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Kingdom Sport. Above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that Cam. With European football's return just around the corner, there's a lot to discuss. We'll be having a look chiefly at the seven fixtures contested by the English sides, with a closer look at the teams they're facing, including a player to watch from each one of those sides. First off, though, is a story coming from English footballing organisations including the FA, Premier League and EFL, amongst others, who last week wrote an open letter to Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, concerning the abuse that players, officials and others have been receiving online. Yeah, and an interesting time for it to come out. Um, obviously, this is going to one's cause the other, but we've seen a lot in recent weeks of players coming out who have receiving abuse on Instagram, either racist abuse or sexist abuse. Obviously, we covered last week Mike Dean getting death threats online. Uh, there was Ian Wright who had an abuse issue which went to court a couple of weeks ago. Um, so we've seen a lot of this coming up lately, and it seems to have come to a head here with this letter, which um, you mentioned there it was uh, amongst a few other organisations. In total, it was the Premier League, the FA, EFA, WSL, Women's Championship, PFA, LMA, PG Bowl, and Kick It Out, the all coastline is open letter. So it's pretty much every major footballing body in the UK that have come together on this, which we don't really see that often, um, and, and says quite a bit about it. And they've written this letter um, asking them for reasons of basic human decency to use the power of their systems to end the abuse. Um, and, and it has sparked quite an interesting topic of conversation because I think, broadly speaking, most people agree that abuse of footballers isn't great. Even the people who are the abusers themselves probably would complain about it when it happened to the players of, of their team, uh, unless they're the ones abusing their own their own players. But I'm sure, like you know, everyone has an issue with it. So I don't think that calling for the end of really really outrageous abuse is in itself a controversial topic. But I do think some of the stuff surrounding it is. Um, looking at the list of demands, if that's even the correct, uh, the, the request that the, that the football authorities put to Facebook yeah, and Twitter, sure. um, they'd asked that messages and posts should be filtered and blocked before being sent or posted if they contain racist or discriminatory material. Um, they asked that the companies should operate robust, transparent and swift measures to take down abusive material if it does get into circulation. Um, and these first two, I think, really no one would have a problem with, unless you really are dedicated to being a keyboard warrior, which I think we can agree is the minority. The vast majority of people don't really have a problem with it. Where it starts to get a little bit murky um, for one reason, and we'll be talking about why the whole thing is uh, potentially good or bad and where the issues and, and solutions are. But this third one, all users should be subject to an improved verification process that allows for accurate identification of the person behind the account. Steps should also be taken to stop a user that has sent abuse previously from re-registering an account. Um, and fourth, I'll get to that in a second, fourth and finally is our platforms should actively and expeditiously assist the investigating authorities in identifying the originators of illegal discriminatory material. And I think where a lot of people have got uh, a little bit defensive over this topic is the idea of identification on social media platforms. Um, obviously, that is one very effective way to reduce the amount of sort of anonymous snarkiness that people have because they sort of feel they're safe to do it. But at the same time, there are some interesting concerns that have been raised about, you know, government-issued ID being used online to make sure everyone's sort of identified. Um, Rupes, do you have any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, just, um, I was really interested to note the, as you mentioned, the demands that they've laid out because 
they seem counter to kind of the way that the public opinion is is moving and also the way that the government is moving. Um, and it, it strikes me as, as something that is confusing because they, as organizations, work very closely with um, people like Facebook and Twitter. I think, for example, Facebook is part of the um, of the organizational body that helps um, run Kick It Out. Mm-hmm. So Facebook very much involved in these organizations. Um, and there is a... The, the other part of this to note is that it's very much something that's coming to a head in legislative arguments with with the government, as I mentioned. Mm -hmm. So in December of last year, a research report was produced by the government, um, which was titled The Online Harms White Paper. Um, And it's basically setting out legislation which the government is looking to undertake, which would require companies to just kind of prevent the... And the spreading of illegal content and activity online, ensure that children who use their services aren't exposed, as well as, you know, celebrities and, and people who have a bigger platform. Um, and it also kind of stated that it would be holding the largest tech companies like Facebook and Twitter to account for what they say they are doing. Not just what they're doing, but what they say they are doing. This is a government paper released two months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, to tackle activity and content that is harmful to adults using their services. Exactly how this is all going to happen has not yet been entirely revealed by the government, other than saying that the level of responsibility and action needed by companies will be tiered based on the type of platform. So there'll be tier two companies, which are smaller things, and then tier one companies like Facebook and Twitter that need to do a lot to address this. It's a really interesting further development to be aware of. And in that sense, you know, reading reading that sort of legislation, it does seem like, as you mentioned, what the FA and all of these other bodies are demanding is not only extreme, but also not very practical. Mm. Well, I think a big part of it, and one of the largest pieces of criticism that's been levelled at these these footballing bodies, um, has been that these things need to be sort of a multi-layered approach. Obviously, social media has a huge part to play here, but so too do the football authorities and who they can hold account um, hold, hold to account for these things. And also, obviously, the legal system in various countries. We had the example I mentioned earlier of Ian Wright, who had uh, his the person who sent racial abuse to him was identified and went to court but hasn't been convicted. So it, it's further than just the social media. And I think the FA and all these other bodies have been quite keen to almost foist the responsibility and pass the buck. Um, Facebook's content policy manager came out and talked about how, you know, racism in football, the exact quote, but she was like, racism in football is a bigger problem than just abusive messages on social media. And I think that's very true. I think that, you know, racism in football didn't start when Twitter started or when Facebook started. I think you could make the case that it's been worsened. But I think football needs to take a look at itself and the areas it can affect, whether that's through broadcasting or things of that nature, or just promotion, how they can reduce it. Um, as an example, last year, a Danish research firm called Run Repeat uh, took a look at 2,000 statements used uh, made across 80 games by um, English football commentators. And they were using it, they were looking at them typically using differing terms for players based on ethnicity. And they proved that there was a bias whereby players with lighter skins are usually praised for intelligence, work ethic and quality, whereas those with darker skins are reduced to their more physical attributes like pace and power. Um, likewise, when a, you know, a light skinned player loses the ball, it's a bit more, oh, he's cheeky, he's clever. Whereas when a dark skinned player loses the ball, it's that was clumsy, that was lazy, he's not, he's not really switched on. Um, so you look at things like this, if it's been examined over 2000 statements, 
pretty pretty solid bit of research there, and that's just something you see in the game. You've obviously still got players like, um, or pundits rather, like Graham Sooners, who cannot wait to jump down the throats of players like Paul Pogba for being lazy, or publications like the Daily Mail, which will regularly lambast players uh, like Tosin Adarbioyo and praise Phil Foden for doing the same thing, which was last year when they both bought their mum's houses. Um, so it's not to say you know, all these people who, you know, abuse players and pundits and referees online should be absolved of blame. But what I'm saying is it's all well and good to have a go at social media for providing the anonymity that allows these people to, to abuse them. But where do they get the idea that it's anywhere okay in the first place? Where, where do these ideas of sort of, you know, if Graham Sooners is writing half of, the, half of the tweet for you, it's not just Twitter's fault. Yeah, exactly. And as you say, it's definitely something that predates, you know, both the platforms and probably football as well um, and, and something that doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon so clearly a lot of work is needed from the grassroots up and by the grassroots up I mean it needs to start at the lowest possible level and reach the highest possible level in all forms uh, so I, I definitely fully agree with you there and it's yeah I mean def- growing up absolutely it was still a part of the game back in 2000, like the early noughties mm. and, and the late kind of 2005, 2010 kind of time. Um, you know, every few weeks there were different um, examples coming out of, of players receiving abuse and things like that and bringing up the use of words as well and rhetoric is really interesting because mm. it kind of just speaks to how deeply ingrained it is in people, even if they ostensibly probably even believe that they themselves are not racist or engage in racist profiling they still have prejudices so i yeah, think a- that's- absolutely and i think that's what the study showed because it was it wasn't just i've singled out for example graham Sooners as an example there maybe just because he's one of the more prevalent uh, examples but this was 80 different games 2000 statements so a real real deep bench and wide examination of hundreds of different pundits and there's still one definite conclusion that's drawn from that um so i think you know, it suggests one or two things. Either all pundits are massively racist, which I just don't think is the case at all, or there are some underlying prejudices that do need to be addressed when people are broadcasting because, you know, eventually people watch people on the TV and that becomes part of the language that you co-opt yourself. Yeah, well, I think that as we've talked about, definitely football often struggles to hold itself accountable Mm. and... If, if ever if there was anything that needed more work it was that uh, within the game and I think as you've kind of alluded to the worry is that it's it's currently falling through the cracks because football is claiming that social media is is the thing that needs to reform itself and mm. social media is claiming that football had these problems way before they were even around and both are both have an, a, a kernel of truth to them in that you know obviously social media is the used platform for a lot of this abuse and also that you know of course racism predate, predates social media but if if both of these bodies are trying to just pass it off onto each other then you know what action is being taken what what new things are coming to light and the other interesting development is just that um English football has not only reached out to social media companies like Facebook and Twitter, but they've also reached out to America and American football organizations like the NBA and the NFL, because not only is America 
the like the origin and the, the the place where these companies are based, Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. It's also something very much going on in America with a lot of high-profile athletes receiving the same yep. kind of abuse over there. So could we be seeing the first kind of setting up, establishing of international ground rules, potentially? Um, could it be another frustrating merry-go-round of everyone refusing to claim responsibility for you know what they could do to help also possibly that's that's the thing really isn't it because when i saw this letter last week my first thought was i was like wow okay so the fa and all these other bodies are actually stepping up when you see like it's a letter written to try and combat abuse and then you read a little bit into the actual specific language of it and there was one sentence in particular that just caught my eye and it was these bodies stating we cannot succeed in reducing the abuse until you change the ability of offenders to remain anonymous and maybe that's just a poorly worded thing or they're trying to sort of be dramatic to get their case across but I think they absolutely can succeed in reducing abuse, not eradicate it entirely without Facebook, but it, it smacks to me as them sort of going, well, we're going to per- personally and publicly state right now that it's not our fault that it's continuing, it's all social media. And there was a part of me that was like, are they are they sidestepping their own duty to, to tackle this problem in doing that? Because to me, it, it felt a bit like they might be. Yeah, I kind of agree with you. And I think the other thing that maybe points to that being true is that in some ways, it kind of reads like a first draft in that some of the claims that they're making are a little outlandish, some of, some of the stuff that they're demanding, that is, by mm. these companies. And the, I mean, just to be perfectly honest, my first instinct when I went onto the FA's website to read their open letter was that they'd made a typo in, in the, the subheading. Mm. Um, so is it just kind of they've hashed out this something which is quite aggressive, as you say, a little bit dramatic, try and flare up people's attention to it, maybe to urge social media to, to be accountable rather than themselves, or is it a genuine attempt with, with feeling? Because definitely the first part, I, I felt like it was stronger than I thought it was going to be, and I thought that was not necessarily a bad thing. Mm. Um, you know, we see so much rhetoric, and for an open letter to come out where they're literally saying like, this needs to change. You need to do this, this, and this. At least, in theory, creates dialogue. Um, so, uh, again, um, this is obviously going to be a conversation which doesn't have any definitive answers because it's such a, a broad topic to discuss how the game needs to be regulated, how social media needs to be regulated. But it, it's really interesting to note how it can be read in, in two very different ways. Yeah, I I think we can all agree that sending an open letter like this and at least making the official state, like the official stance of all these bodies that they oppose this abuse and and having that is a step forwards. But it's just a question if that's a step forwards and two steps back or just a step forwards. I think ultimately, hopefully it will be a step forward because the more this is talked about, the more this is emphasised, the more people that recognize it as a concern i think generally the more accountable we will hold people as as like a a broad rule Mm. but in the short term i'm not sure if it's going to lead to anything constructive well we'll have to wait and see how this story develops um shall we move in the meantime on to guessing game i think you've got someone for me this week Yes, let's. So let me uh, cool down <laughs> from the uh, serious topic. Um, yes, yeah, so guessing game. I've got a couple of clues for you this week. I think you'll get it. I'm interested to know. It's okay. maybe a slightly reserved one as of the last few weeks. 
but uh, we'll, we'll see how you get on. So this player was once the most expensive Nigerian player of all time. Okay. Further to that, he's the third highest African Premier League goalscorer of all time with 96 goals across five different Premier League sides. Okay. And he's also the third highest goalscorer of all time for his country, Nigeria. So, so sorry, that was the third highest African goalscorer in the Premier League, yeah? Yep, of all okay. time. With 96 for five different Premier League sides. So okay. a bit of a journeyman. Uh, and he's also Nigeria's all-time top goalscorer. No, he's also Nigeria's third all-time top scorer. Ah. So he's, he's third for both. I think I have an idea who this might be. Uh, you, you might well do, and uh, this, this final clue is probably going to um, knock it out of the park for you if you do. His nickname, which is a shortened version of his actual name, is a reference to an animal with a pretty bulky frame. Uh, okay, I'm going to write that down. That, that one's not clicking in my head. I'm just thinking of the name of the player I think it is. I'm, I'm drawing a blank there. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was just ignoring that entirely. I don't know what... I, I, it was a different player than I thought it was, but I'm pretty sure I know who it is now. Okay, sure thing. Well, those are your clues. We will return to that later on. Um, in the meantime... Let's move into a discussion on the European football and what English sides will be taking on in the next week or two. So yeah, starting with the Champions League games, before we look at any of the games specifically, one of the really interesting things about this round of fixtures is a lot of the teams aren't playing at home at all um, because of various COVID restrictions. Um, and I think that's definitely going to create a very interesting dynamic for a lot of these teams, given that it's a very packed schedule, especially in the Europa League games, um, where the teams are playing a Thursday, then the weekend, then the following Thursday. Um, if you're flying to three different away games, or even just traveling to three different away games, it could have a huge effect on your squad, um, you know, especially in this already injury-prone season. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, there's an added stress involved, of course, in, in all of this you know, organisation of, of travel and things like that and, and making sure that everyone's staying safe and things. And I think it's just going to add an extra layer of weirdness for all of these players as they try and prepare for their games. So now more than ever, probably, I, I would say that it's it's going to be a, a mental battle before they even take to the pitch. Yeah, it definitely will be. Um, speaking of uh, the mental battle, shall we move into our first game, which might be a little bit of that, between these two teams that have both had uh, mental setbacks to a degree, uh, Leipzig and Liverpool. Um, and Liverpool we discussed in detail last episode and the episode, I think, before that. Um, but looking at Leipzig, really interesting story to come out for them this week with the news that Dio Upamecano, who is, by many accounts, their best player and certainly one of their best players, uh, by all accounts, is off to Bayern next season. Um, do you think they're going to be adversely affected by the fact that this news has come out a in the middle of the season and b right before one of the biggest games of their like one of the biggest games in their season? I mean, firstly, yes. How can it not? Secondly, I feel like they definitely recognise themselves as a selling club. Um, so I, I don't think it's going to have some sort of seriously significantly damaging like mental thing. It's not like Man City have lost their best player. Mm. It's 
by by which I mean a a club that is not used to selling its best talent. Um, so I think I think probably a little bit. It's it's probably one more thing to to throw off the game. The other part is it's always hard to tell. Different clubs have such different internal structures. We don't know how much players in the dressing room will have seen this coming. We don't know how much the manager will have seen this coming. So it's a bit of a a thing we can't really quantify. It just seems a bit weird. I, I was uh, stalking through a little bit of German Twitter to sort of try and get the fan reaction to this because there was also um, a similar one that we'll get into in a minute with um, Borussia Mönchengladbach. But just the, the idea of a, a player being announced who was going to leave, it's not something that's novel. We, we see it in Germany a lot. We actually saw it, if you remember, um, a week before, Bar- uh, before Bayern Munich played Dortmund in the Champions League final. They announced that they were signing Goethe. And maybe it is just cultural differences, but it just seems like such a weird thing to me. Upa Meccano, you can't convince me, won't have at least one eye on Bayern now for the rest of the season. The rest of the players aren't going to have completely an eye on him. So it's just such a weird thing to announce at this time of all times. Have the deal by all means, but maybe keep it under your hat. But yeah, it just seemed like a weird one to come out. Agreed. I mean, yeah, it it is a bit weird. Um, And... He is, by all accounts, as you mentioned, you know, one of their strongest players, and he's going to need to be on form. So you would think that it's probably going to affect his performance, as you said. Might well have a, a one eye somewhere else. Um, so fingers crossed, he can maintain his professionalism. Uh, he is a professional player, so mm. you know. Yeah, fingers crossed. Otherwise, Leipzig are looking to maybe make this the most exciting match of the tie. Uh, it's, it's, uh, there's a couple of them uh, that have really grabbed my interest, but Leipzig-Liverpool really seems interesting. Obviously, Leipzig uh, were the side that knocked out Manchester United from the Champions League back in December. Um, obviously, not in the knockout stages, but beat them in the group stage game to finish second, uh, oh, sorry, fin- finish above them and send uh, United down to the Europa League and also um, made it to the Champions League semi-finals last year. So despite being a relatively recent wet-behind-the-ears team, then not the wide-eyed team that I think maybe a lot of people are expecting them to be given how you know new their name is on the scene they have European experience they have a bit of European pedigree um, definitely not as much as Liverpool but they're not going to be just rolling over um, obviously in the league as well they're doing really really well currently second in the Bundesliga and I think it'll be really interesting to see these two teams play because where Leipzig really excel is they're really strong on set pieces and they love to play a tight game of football lots of ball to feet passes moving it around quickly and Liverpool getting overrun in the midfield is something we've seen a lot lately so is this going to be something that Leipzig see the stars aligned for or is it going to be maybe Thiago finally comes good? <laughs> well, it, it, that's what's exciting about it. It could go either way. I think that, you know, what what's the interesting narrative is that both of these sides have experienced setbacks for different reasons and they will probably view this as a real bounce-back game in which they can re-establish themselves as a side that is in good form and producing results. Yeah, it should be, it should be very interesting. Um, I have gone for the player to watch for this one. Uh, so this is just a little thing we're going to be doing for all these games um, in case you're not familiar with the team or you're not massively familiar with the uh, the players the teams have. Rupert and I are going to take turns picking a player from the team and the player to watch I've gone for in this match is Christopher Nkunku. Um, who is, uh, well, I would say he's a midfielder, he's a striker, but part of why he's such an impressive player is he does a bit of it all. Um, 
And the reason he's such an interesting player to watch for me is he kind of embodies the whole Leipzig system. Uh, Often when teams play a really specific style, you can identify one or two players that that make it work. We've talked about people in the Premier League like that before, but, you know, examples on the European stage are like Di Maria in the Real Madrid La Decima side when he was playing that shuttler role, or Arturo Vidal in the Juventus 3-5-2 setup. You know what I mean? When people, Mm, almost almost like the after stage of when people talk about a team that's missing that puzzle piece, like this this is then that puzzle plan. I think in Kunku is this for Leipzig and the reason for that is that Julian Nagelsmann is quite peculiar in a manager and he loves changing his 11s um, both in terms of who actually plays but also the formation they've rolled out with eight different formations so far this season and players are always being asked to perform in different roles um, the other really obvious examples of this are Angelino, who has just signed from City and Marcel Sabitzer who's another fantastic player but Nkunku has started games as a striker in a front two this season, a midfielder in a midfield three, as a 10, a winger on both sides of the striker, a number 10 in a 43-1, a number 10 in, in a um, 4-4-2 diamond. So he's really pulled off a load of different roles, which is really impressive anyway, but it really affords Leipzig a great deal of in-game flexibility. And it means that when they are on the front foot, they can change to maybe bring things back a little bit and reserve the lead. Or if they think the opposition's weak, change something a little bit more offensive and vice versa. Um, And I think this is part of what makes Leipzig a really, A, a really interesting team to watch and B, a really difficult team to deal with. Um, So yeah, he'll be the one that I would, would say is the one to watch. If for no other reason, then you'll have to keep your eye on him because one minute he'll be up front leaning on the defender of the last on the shoulder of the last defender. The next minute he'll be coming down the wing. The next minute he'll be picking up the ball from deep. So, yeah, definitely want to watch there, Christopher and Kunku. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I think the the only other thing to add is just that Liverpool have have had have some real troubles in midfield because all of their midfielders are playing in defence. So, you know, someone who is that tactically flexible and that dangerous is is going to potentially give some serious problems. Yeah, and it's it, it just the ability to... So much in the, in the Premier League, definitely, in most leagues, but the Premier League you hear all the time, is put on like a manager's ability to make the correct subs positionally. People will be like, oh, that's not a very positive sub if a manager doesn't bring on a striker when they're a goal down. But having a player that can change the shape of your team without having to look to the bench is just such a benefit. Uh, they have a couple of them, but Nkunku's the one that I think is the best at it, so he's who I've gone for. Definitely no. I think uh, you've you've got you've got a good one. You picked a good one. Um, moving into the next game, which is a complete switch up in the narrative, Atletico take on Chelsea in the Champions League, and this comes at a time where Atletico are really in the ascendancy. They are five points at the top, five points ahead of second place Real Madrid, and they have two games in hand. So they're really dominating domestically at the moment. And Chelsea are a team that have really turned things around since they appointed Thomas Tuchel. They looked re- like just looking more and more solid as the weeks go on. Mm. Recently, over the weekend, so on Monday night, they, they beat Newcastle 2-0. So they're definitely moving in the right direction and it'll be a real challenge for them to see how they fare against one of, if not arguably, the best performing European side at the moment. 
Well, I think this game is is really, really interesting, specifically because it's happening next week. Uh, and that's because Atletico, although they're in really, really good form, you're bang on there. And arguably, I think that's a very hot take, but not a hot take I would dump a lot of water on, because I, I might jump on that bandwagon, actually. But they are looking like one of the best teams in Europe. The only problem that they have at the moment is that several of their players are currently self-isolating. Uh, loads of first-team players, Thomas Lamar, Hector Herrera, Hal Felix, Yannick Carrasco, Moussa Dembele, and Mario Hermoso are all self-isolating. Um, so they're going to miss the first leg. And even if they're back in time for the second leg, it's not like... The, the COVID self-isolation is a little bit difficult because there's not really a gradual a gradual return. When a player is out injured for like two weeks with a, a little knock or something, even though they're not playing in that second week, the second half of their recovery is they're maybe out on training, doing a little bit of passing. They're with the physio, they're getting back into it. We've seen loads of examples this season already in the Premier League of players coming back from the COVID self-isolation, but then it's another two or three weeks before they're playing again, or at least starting, because um, they're having to basically come from cold back into the routine. Um, and I think this basically provides Chelsea with a real opportunity to take the game to a side that at full strength, I don't know they would be able to. Um, obviously, it's still very early to see under, under Tuchel, but we wouldn't have seen it with Lampard for sure. Um, and I think we talked about last week, or, or I did anyway, how Tuchel's been a little bit tentative and a little bit cautious, and not in a bad way because they've won five of their first six games and drew the other one. So the results have been very good. But I think that being cautious against this weakened Atletico side might not be a luxury that Chelsea can afford. I think if they're going to get the best out of this tie, they'll want to go in there really all guns blazing, twist the knife. And then if Atletico do have a re-strengthened side later on, Chelsea will either be more comfortable to sit back or they can just completely be on the beach and go, see you guys, we scored four in the first leg. Yeah, true. I mean, I think I would slightly change that narrative. In my opinion, I feel like Chelsea have looked tentative. Mm-hmm. But I don't think Thomas Tuchel as a manager has looked tentative. He has not been afraid to change things up at half time and make substitutions. He's he's rolling through a bunch of different formations as well as switching out different players to try new new things. So I I really think that Chelsea are looking like they're still gaining their form back. They're still, you know, you know, finding their feet in these new tactical systems. But I think Thomas Tuchel's influence is very much to achieve and to go out and and be as positive as you can from the start. And I think that that's something that they're definitely building into. Most recently seen against Newcastle, they started the game really fast and Newcastle never really got into it after that. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because of the progression. Atletico interesting because while they do have a lot of squad depth, as you say, a lot of the key players are missing. Um, That being said, one of their players that uh, isn't missing is Luis Suarez, who currently sits top of the... La Liga scoring tables. He's a player that English fans know very well and he just looks like he's back to his dominant best. 16 goals already and just absolutely flying. He is yeah, not, well, however... <laughs> Absolutely, Sorry, it's, not, it's not like um, it's not it's not like Atletico are running in without a squad at all for sure. They are missing some key players, but they are still very much in possession of some key players that can ruin uh, a backline that's coming in too confidently. So, so yeah, g- good to point that out. Yeah, definitely. Um, Luis Suarez is not, however, the player that I've chosen for my one to watch. I've gone for one just because everyone knows Luis Suarez. They know he's going to be a threat. They know what to look for there. I think yep. the, the main player in terms of, as you mentioned, someone that embodies what Atletico are doing uh, and someone that has been on great form this season, had a breakout season last season, is Marcos Llorente. Uh, so he is a centre midfielder by trade predominantly a defensive midfielder, but has also been learning to 
play a little higher up the pitch under Diego Simeone. I think um, the main reason why he's going to be really interesting is because he he really typifies what Atletico are, which are a really hard-pressing team that defend high up the pitch, will capitalise on any single mistake that they can, and really brings the fight to you. He has you know, started in, I think, 36 games last season. He's very much at the core of their team at the moment. And he has been one of their most consistent performers this season so far. Nice. Yeah, definitely want to keep an eye on that. Um, I, I rate the selection. Um, shall we move next into Mönchengladbach City, uh, which is not their at all name. I've slammed the two together, which is something that Gladbach didn't didn't need any more of. But um, yeah, no, they, as mentioned, have had a, another weird one, much like Leipzig um, earlier this week or last week, rather, uh, their manager, Marco Rose, announced he was leaving for Borussia Dortmund, who are Mönchengladbach's rivals. Um which is weird because, again, it's like, A, the manager going to your rivals is is crazy. Imagine that happening in the Premier League. And B, announcing that in the middle of the season. Um, Montreglabach also haven't been massively convincing in the Bundesliga this season. Currently sat in seventh, um, which, you know, could get you past some teams. But against a Man City in this form is, is, is not a great place to be. No, definitely. Uh, they are looking like they are completely dominating the game at the moment and they look like they're really on form and they have adapted well to the the positions that the people that have been out um like Sergio Aguero most notably the other mm. thing to mention about Borussia Mönchengladbach is that there's a swirl of rumors surrounding a couple of their key players uh in last week alone um both Denis Zakaria and uh Florian Nehaus have been linked with a number of English sides um up to five in both cases so it does look like they are potentially a club in transition and they could well get absolutely spanked by a side that are very much not in transition, very much know what they are about and and how to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important to note as well, one of the other things I slightly wanted to talk about, and I think this will be more relevant when we come to the Europa League section of the game, but I think is the only Champions League team that's really relevant for it is Manchester City, maybe. It's talking about how much the tournament means to each team, because I think every single team in world football wants to win the Champions League. It's, it's the most impressive award you can win as a club, I think. None more, perhaps, than Manchester City, who have, you know... Not that it's not great for everyone else, but for example, I feel like if you asked most Liverpool fans last season if they could choose between the Champions League and the Premier League, they would choose the Premier League all day, despite the fact that I think in a vacuum almost all football fans agree the Champions League is the better prize, whereas City are completely the reverse because they've won the Premier League so many times in the last decade, but the Champions League is the one thing that eludes them. Um, They are going to be going for it with a zest that I don't think a lot of other teams will share. Not that that means they'll storm it, because it hasn't worked so far, but I think just interesting to put in there that that they'll be going for it in a way that, you know, maybe Liverpool and Chelsea to a slight... I think Chelsea will still be keen, but they have won it, whereas City are just going to be going for it, hell, all, all guns blazing. Yeah, absolutely. And and in that, I think the the player that I have chosen to pick out that has the potential to disrupt City's form and the plans that they might have before the game is uh, Alassane Player. Um, so this is a 27-year-old striker who is arguably Montreglabach's key player, very much at the height of his game, has been very prolific this season so far, and he is someone that is, is a central forward, but he's very flexible tactically. He's really good at reading the game and dropping deeper and allowing wingers to get more into the game when needed. And he's incredibly strong at playing between the lines. So 
while City haven't had too many kind of flaws this season, I think one of the key narratives has been that they have still yet to really properly replace their, you know, holding, holding midfielder in Fernandinho uh, with, with a world-class, bona fide, tried and tested uh, central defensive midfielder. So someone like Alisson Player who can come in and overload the midfield at times and also, you know, play between them at others could prove quite damaging. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I think most people are looking at this game like it only has one outcome, um, which I don't think is, obviously, you know, it's football, so anything can happen. But I think the the, the smart money would be on City. That being said, I think Mönchengladbach's path to victory here probably lies in the fact that, as you said, not only does City not have a full replacement for Fernandinho, but Rodri's been on and off injured for the last few weeks. He's been struggling with the knock. Gundogan picked up a little bit of a knock uh, last week as well. Uh, obviously, he's not an out defensive midfielder, but even if he has to cover for Rodri, that reduces the efficacy of their most potent attacking threat over the last few weeks. Um, so if either or both of those players are, are injured or picking up a knock, it'll definitely open up uh, a, a path for Gladbach to win the game that I don't know would be there otherwise could well be yeah and I always just feel like as soon as you think the narrative's written that's when you get absolutely surprised yeah absolutely true um with that shall we move into useless trivia before we head into the Europa League yes please I would love to hear what you have conjured up this week for your statistics and your trivia uh, yeah, so I've got one uh, that isn't actually about the Champions League, but it just reminded me of the Champions League. Because remember how last year, last season, we had a stat about Divock Origi and scoring at times of the day because of his, you know, runs in, in Europe. Um, so he had like a vampire scoring clock. We just never scored goals before the sun went down. Um, yeah. A similar stat that I found out this week is really interesting, and it's concerning Aston Villa's defensive record. Uh, and that's that Aston Villa have kept clean sheets on each of their last six games held on a Saturday, but have not kept a clean sheet in any of their last six games that are held not on a Saturday. That were held last. So, interesting. <laughs> on a Saturday, Villa can't be beat. On a, a Sunday or Sunday through Friday, have a cover pop from it's, range. It's literally anyone's guess. <laughs> That is uh, an interesting statistic. When's their next game? Uh, I think their next game is... Is that the one they've got against um, Leicester? I think it's on a Sunday. So, watch out. <laughs> James Ronald, well, your boots. Good, good luck at Villa Park, I guess. Um, <laughs> that is a uh, quite a good... Um, quite a good statistic indeed. Uh, I have quite a funny statistic as well, which is around... A player which could prove pivotal to a game that we will be discussing soon in Gareth Bale. Um, there are four players, sorry, only, so there are three players who um, in the history of the Premier League have scored, assisted and scored an own goal in a single Premier League game. Those are Wayne Rooney, Gareth Bale and Kevin Davies. The only one of them to have also received a yellow card is Gareth Bale. Uh, so I don't want to say that that's maybe the most prolific game of all time. But, yeah, a lot happened for the man. Jeez, trailblazer. Yeah, you know, he just likes to get in and everywhere, doesn't he? No red <laughs> card, which I think was the main disappointment that I felt when uh, when discovering this statistic. But, you know, it, I think that also speaks to the fact that I'm interested to see what he's going to do. Anything yeah. could happen. His career's um, not over yet. Still time. Definitely. 
Um, looking at the Europa League games next, and the first thing that I think we should cover with these is that there is a bit of a difference between these fixtures and the Champions League fixtures in that these will have both legs played over the course of a week with a Premier League game in between, uh, whereas the Champions League games have a longer break between them. Um, so it just, you know, really, really puts pressure on the schedule. Um, but starting off with Real Sociedad hosting Manchester United, um, this will be a very interesting game because Real Sociedad are a side with a lot of knowledge of the Premier League in their squad. Um, they've got two veterans of the league in David Silva and Nacho Monreal. And of course, they've got former United prodigy himself, Adnan Yanazai, uh, amongst their ranks. Um, so they're going to know United intimately well. Um, David Silva definitely has... He was one of the like main architects of the shift of power in, in the city of Manchester. So I'm sure he'll be happy to see them. Uh, and Nacho Monreal is very familiar with them. Adnan Yanazai played there. So it'll be interesting to see how that affects the game. Um, they're doing quite well in the league this season. They're currently fifth. Um, although a lot of their games this season have seen them drop points where they shouldn't. They've dropped a lot of points from leading positions and ended up drawing games and sometimes losing games. And that, for me, combined with any team is not great. But United, who love to come alive in the final 15, that's like a that's a, a dangerous that's combination. That's trouble, yeah. You know, if, if one team drops their heads towards the back end and the other team has just started to wake up. Um, that being said, this is one of those games that I was talking about where maybe the priority of the tournament will be will come into play because I can see Manchester United maybe coming out with a less than full strength 11 uh, in this game they won the Europa League not that long ago and they look pretty likely to finish top four so for them this tournament doesn't mean that much beyond obviously a European piece of silverware albeit the, the second most important European piece of silverware um, you know whereas some of the teams we'll talk about later like Spurs and Arsenal winning the Europa League probably is the best chance of playing in the Champions League next season Unless things go Agreed. really, really poor for Manchester United, they're probably going to finish top four, so it, it doesn't matter as much to them. Um, and I'm sure, honestly, that it's, it's probably crossed a couple of minds at United that if they do get knocked out here, it could end up working out well for them in the league if City are still playing in the Champions League and Liverpool are still playing in the Champions League and Chelsea are still playing in the Champions League and have these midweek commitments while they have seven days to rest for every game. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I think the main thing is to counter that is that Manchester United are a club desperately trying to change their narrative. They're a club, you know, that really want to stay relevant in Europe in terms of bringing in new talent. And the fact that they are picking up in form and playing better under the manager and things like that probably will all contribute to the fact that they're really going to want a result out of this game, even just for, for the sake of their pride. Mm -hmm. um, Sociedad are... They're having a pretty good season. They're fifth at the table at the moment. They've, they've as you might have mentioned, they lost the last three games, so mm. they're not going into it with, with the strongest form. So, I think that the main concern for Manchester United's perspective is that they will underestimate their opponents, um, and they could well, yeah, drop their heads um, if if things start to go wrong. So, I, I could see an upset here, and it could well be that it doesn't benefit them massively to to win this game and to progress. But yeah, it's anyone's it's anyone's take. I mean, what what is the player that you have decided to cover? Uh, the player to watch I've gone for here is someone that we've mentioned in the podcast before. Long-time listeners might remember him from the signing episode, and that is Mikkel Marino. Um, he's a really good player, which is why we sort of brought him up before, and he's having another great season this time out. Uh, and I think in this game especially, he's going to be really, really critical to Sociedad's game plan. Um, these days, more often than not, how well you do against United is often pretty heavily linked to how well you keep Bruno Fernandes out of the game. Uh, and so, you know, Marino playing in that position, that's going to be his chief responsibility 
responsibility. He plays sort of in between the two other midfielders in the midfield three, so he's not a fully fully dedicated number four defensive midfielder, but he's also not a number 10 slash number eight. He sort of plays in that. Almost, I wanted to say, I was having this in a conversation the other day, what's in between like a six and an eight? Is it a six and a half or is it a seven? Um, but yeah, no, but, but like, <laughs> you get what I mean. He's one of those... Um, those sort of yeah, hybrid sure. midfielders. He's been doing really well defensively. He's first, second, or third in the squad rankings for tackles, interceptions, and blocks. Um, he's partnered really well in the pivot with Asia Iremendi when they're in attacking phases, but also played really well with David Silva in attacking shifts of the game. Uh, and I think that if you Sociedad is to get a game out here, Mikel Marino will have to lead by example in the midfield, um, excepting, of course, United coming out and... I wouldn't say that they're not going to care about this game because I do agree with what you were saying about United wanting the narrative of being a team that wins everything. I just think that football is a game of such fine margins and if you have a team that it absolutely hungers for this and another team that's like, yeah, it'd be cool to win it, that can that can be all the difference. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think just to provide maybe a small counterpoint to what you said, I think that something that we have seen in recent weeks is that Manchester United seem to be learning how to play with other players as well as Bruno Fernandes in the final third. So I, I would almost say that it could be a potential misgiving of Sociedad's to focus a lot of their defensive attention on Bruno Fernandes as they really are developing a lot more threats, both from the wings, from their fullbacks, and from, from whoever starts up top. Um, they definitely are. So, they definitely are. But I would say it's a difference between a developing threat and a fully developed threat. And I know which one I prioritise. Which isn't, you know, not not to say that Rashford can't be lethal and and Martial can't be lethal and do that sort of stuff in the right kind of circumstance. But you know, what one is like a sixty percent chance it'll lose you the game. One's like an eighty percent chance it'll lose you the game if you ignore it. Yeah, reasonable. I mean, I think you can still definitely argue that he's their most important player going forwards and. To stop him is to to stop a lot of their creativity. Yeah, for sure. Um, looking at uh, our next game, Benfica hosting Arsenal. Uh, Benfica are another side with a little bit of Premier League experience in their ranks. The centre-back partnership that they've been starting for the majority of this season uh, of Jan Vertonghen and Nicolas Otamendi have nearly 400 Premier League games between them. Um, although the problem with that is that the experience does come at a little bit of a price in that they're both 33 years old. Um that is, you know, Jan Vertonghen always had a bit of pace about it, but Nicolas Otamendi was not the quickest centre-back in the world to begin with. Um, he was not. And, and this could definitely be a little bit of trouble against an Arsenal side that has not only pace up top, but also creative vision with players like Smithrow and Erdegaard, who like that pass for players to run on to. Um, and I think, unsurprisingly, uh, a little bit of a preview as to my player to watch, but a lot of the responsibility is going to come down to the fullbacks um, for you know for covering those dangerous runs. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's yeah, the the centre back pairing is interesting because it'd be definitely interesting to to see from the English fans' perspective because we definitely remember them as as players who very much contributed strongly to their sides, and they were no small mm. sides in in Tottenham and Man City. So. Yeah, I mean, the other part of me was thinking, I wonder if Arsenal, if they would fit in to Arsenal's centre-back right now, either of them. And I think probably still would. Um, they're still, they've still got decent form for Benfica. Um, although, I, I would say as well, Benfica have had a really chock-a-block um, packed schedule over the last few weeks. They've played, uh, I think, f- six times in February alone already. 
Um, so, so that could also contribute. Um, but definitely, Arsenal will need to be wary of the threats from from the wide players. Yeah, I think Benfica have they've had a lot of games, and that's lent itself to a little bit of inconsistency. They've had. Uh, a bit bit of a run where they've drawn some games they shouldn't have and, and lost some they shouldn't have. They're currently fourth in the league. Um, and they've had some misfiring forwards. Recently, Harris Seferovic has picked up a little bit of form and will hope to take into this game. But I, I just don't know if they're... They'll need to change something from how they've been playing recently to effectively put down Arsenal. Um, and I think Arsenal are one of those teams, as I mentioned, who are going to be going after the Europa League with everything. I think for where, where Man United will look at Sociedad and go oh, this is a fairly big game. Arsenal will be looking at this game and be going, this is the biggest game of our season um, because they're not going to finish top four, barring an, a massive, massive drop from everyone else. And they're desperate to get back into the Champions League, um, even though they've got Manchester City in between. The only thing that might result in them not feeling the strongest 11 possible is this Abamyang story that's come out in the last hour, um, which was uh, a tattoo artist in London posted a video to his Instagram of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang getting a tattoo and fans have noticed that Aubameyang had his hand wrapped um, in the game on the weekend against Leeds. So the question now is, has he broken COVID protocol? The club are investigating. If he has, he's going to miss this game and that's not really a great thing for Arsenal. Definitely not and it also, you know, surely affects the mentality in the dressing room if your, your best player is doing whatever the hell he wants and not respecting the guidelines that the club has set out. Um, sure, sure. and club mention, captain. Best player yeah. and club captain. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing to mention is that, you know, we talked about Benfica's form being a little bit sporadic. You know, Arsenal have, in the last, you know, three games, had two red cards against Wolves, lost 1-0 to Aston Villa where they looked really poor, and then beaten Leeds 4-2. So, at this point, from my perspective, it's like anything can happen. Yeah, a real, a real, you know, which two sides turn up on the day? Just flip a coin, decide which one's the good one. But I'm going to look at the, uh, I alluded to it a little bit with how I think Benfica will have to focus their game plan. Uh, my player to watch is Alejandro Grimaldo, who is a left back for Benfica. Um, I think with Arsenal, especially with the Sabamiang news, but also with the fact that they've got Man City and they do have a number of wingers to line up with and a number of midfielders that they can choose from, it's, it's not easy to know exactly how they'll line up. You have a basic idea of the shape, but which personnel it will be isn't guaranteed as to like whether Pepe will be on the wing or Emil Smith-Rowe or whether Erdegaard will play as well. Um, but I think the one player that is probably locked in on the team sheet for a big game like this is Bakayo Saka. Um, he's been absolutely monstrous coming in off the right and I think Grimaldo as the left back will have to be the player who picks up the majority of the work there. Um, Vertonghen is the centre-back that plays on the left-hand side so that'll be interesting that little sort of duo if the two of them can work together to shepherd Saka out of the game um, because if they can much like with Fernandez, if you manage to keep Saka quiet it really mutes Arsenal uh, and vice versa if you let Saka run free Arsenal are going to look a lot more effective. Uh, I think um, Gilberto the right back is also going to have a job on his hands if Nicola Pepe comes in and shows some of the form he's shown recently at left wing um, but yeah definitely the, the main player to watch both because he's going to be the busiest player on the pitch I reckon and also because he is a solid left back um, with four assists so far this season so I, I don't think he's going to be doing a whole bunch of attacking here um, it's going to be Grimaldo yeah I mean a, a player that has definitely been on the radar of a lot of fans for a long time he's he's still a young player at 25 he grew up at Barcelona before moving to Portugal, an incredibly talented player going forward and also defensively. So, yeah, agreed. He he's a key player. 
For sure. Absolutely. Uh, shall we look at Wolfsburg hosting Tottenham next? Yeah, for sure. And this um, this is, again, a super interesting game just because, you know, from the English perspective, Tottenham are a side in crisis. They have lost five of their last six games, which is a terrible statistic for them. And they are really looking for some sort of identity, I would still say, under Mourinho. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem, isn't it, really, is that when you play a certain kind of football, um, or not even a certain kind of football, but you're just looking for the result. I was reading an interview um, yesterday, I can't remember who the player was, but I think it was... Um it was Marcus Rashford actually was talking about how when Mourinho came to United, he was sort of teaching them that the result, the actual outcome of the scoreline of the game didn't matter. It was just the result. I think the exact quote was 1-0 is the same result as 5-4 or something. And that's that's a great philosophy to have, I suppose, if you're winning. That's not what's happening to Spurs at the moment. They're getting all sorts of results, but most of them end up not benefiting the side. I did look at this this fixture and I thought, you know, on paper, this should be the most one-sided of the games of all the leagues that these teams that we've mentioned so far have come from. Um, the Austrian Bundesliga is probably the weakest and Wolfsburg aren't even dominating. It's not like we'll go on to Slavia Prague in a little bit um, and they play in the Fortuna Czech League, but they are top by 10 points. Wolfsburg are mid-table in the Austrian Bundesliga, so they're not even excelling in that league. So in theory, yeah, it should be a, one of the easiest fixtures um, for the English sides to take on. But Spurs' form has been pretty rough. Um, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. It definitely will, and I think the the main thing to to be cognizant of from from Tottenham's perspective is that Europe has typically been until now in the season an opportunity for some of the more fringe players to take you know their place in the squad. And have games, we're talking about the likes of Deli Alley, even players like Gareth Bale, who we've talked about a lot as, as and questioned whether or not he should have a larger role in, in the season so far. It'll be interesting to see how they come back in, what kind of energy they have. Are they eager to produce results and show that they should be playing instead of the, the players that are potentially underperforming at the moment? Or will it be kind of just a perpetuation of this negative football that they have been categorised by for the last few months. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think um, when you talk about these players, we had the early already this season when Mourinho played a second string side, I think earlier in the Europa League, and they had a really bad result. And he came out and was like, you asked me why I don't play these players? Now you see, you can kind of already imagine this game, Tottenham turning up with a weakened 11 because they think it's an easy game. Dele Alli misplaces a couple of passes. Mourinho's going nuts at halftime, and it wouldn't be the strangest thing in the world to see them crumble. Um, so, so yeah. Who, who have you gone for, incidentally, as your player to watch? Yeah, for sure. I agree with what you just said. I think that as a result of what we've just talked about, the midfield battle is going to be key and also, you know, momentum will be massive. The, the first few opening exchanges will be really important. The player I've gone for is an incredibly um, experienced player. He's 35 years old and he's really sat at the heart of, of Wolfsburger's midfield, which is Michael Lindel. Um, I'm confident I've butchered the pronunciation of his name, so I will do my best to uh, present a good front of him as a player and he has really impressed in the competition so far. He's got a hat trick already in the competition um, against Feyenoord and he is one of their key performers so far this season. He kind of operates both as, you know, I said the heart of the midfield in terms of passing and set pieces, 
but he's also that kind of he, he's he's got great concentration and awareness and from Tottenham's perspective as a side which is experiencing a little bit of instability at the moment and they will also be having several players coming into their lineup who don't normally play together week in week out I mm. think that someone like Michael Lindel will be key in determining whether or not Wolfsberger can take something from this game yeah a good pick good pick I think it'll, it'll be interesting to watch him for sure definitely well he's, he's got four goals and five appearances in the Europa League so far uh, four goals in two games in the domestic cup uh, and four goals as well in, in the Bundesliga so you know having a very prolific season yeah not a lot of 35 year olds score hat-trick except for Zlatan so that's that's pretty impressive he's, he's actually the uh, the third oldest player to ever do it after Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Aritz Aduriz there you go that, those were, that would have been the second pick Harris Aduriz is still probably playing for Bilbao age 90 <laughs> he is an old man um, looking at our last game, Slavia Prague versus Leicester. And before we even talk about anything that's going to happen on the pitch or what we expect there, the first thing we've got to discuss, and I don't know if you've seen this, is the hilarious amount of shit talking Slavia Prague have done as a club in the lead up to this game. Um, they've produced a mini series on their website called Leicester Loading to sort of prepare fans for the game. Um, and it is completely available on YouTube with English subtitles, so I would absolutely encourage anyone to watch it. The presenter of the miniseries, who is a local fan and comedian, has called Kasper Schmeichel fat and accused him of being the only Premier League player that wears a corset. He's bashed Leicester as a city, like, as a place, and he's described it as a city where, personally, I wouldn't want to live. And when asked about Jamie Vardy and talking about him, he described him as not an intellectual who gets arrested. Yeah, I mean, a a bizarre approach. And um, they got called out for it on Twitter by a fan as just being absolutely bizarre and i quote and in response they said really sorry if this was the only impression from the episode if you watch it you will get to the part where casper schmeichel is praised for his performance and described as a key player of the team we have great respect for the club yeah just absolutely very strange um, that's an excuse as well it's like yeah we call your players fat and thick but we did also say they can play well well, exactly. They they even apparently have made the equally strange claim that Schmeichel wears a corset. Um, yeah, yeah, so... yeah. I was, I was saying he's called the only Premier League player that wears a corset, which is just like because he's so fat. I mean, it's just all very, it's, yeah. It's 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 a uh, you got if you write that check, you've got to be able to cash it. Um, <laughs> That's true. That's very true. If they win now, hilarious. If they get battered by a very informed Leicester side, Leicester are just going to be like, right, Casper, go sit on their manager. <laughs> you would hope um, yeah I mean it's it's fun I, I do like that level of engagement with different clubs I like the kind of playful back and forth between them that you sometimes see I say this one very much plays the line between playful and like excuse me but I thought it was funny fun but if little, I was someone who lived in Leicester I might be a bit like uh, excuse you yeah that's, that's fair um, but no a, a nice little uh, dialogue that will <laughs> You know, probably lend a little bit of spice to the game. <laughs> For sure. Uh, looking at this game uh, as itself, Leicester are a bit of an interesting one because despite the fact they've been, as far as I, I think this is right, they've been in the top four this season more than anyone else in the league consistently. They've never really been discussed as title contenders. We've had like a million and one people talked about potentially winning the league, even talking about teams like Everton at the very start of the season. But no one's really had a serious conversation about Leicester. Um 
And in a sense, I can see this game being a lot to them like the Sociedad game is to United. Um, throughout the tournament already, they've fielded weakened teams uh, to the point of losing a game to Zoya Lahansk in the group stages and also conceding three goals to Braga. So while they might take it a little more seriously in the knockout stages, they already have looked at this and gone, well, it's not the most important thing for us. Let's just finish, finish well in the league. Um, and again, like United, they might look at the other teams and go, well... There's no way we catch City in an even foot race, but if we don't have any commitments and they do, that could do it for us. And, you know, lest we forget, the season that they won the Premier League in 2015-16, unsurprisingly because they sort of came out of nowhere, so they hadn't qualified for anything, they weren't playing in any European leagues, and they also tanked deliberately all of their FA Cup and Carabao Cup games. They just played like kids for all of them, so the only thing they were focusing on was the league. Um, so they do have precedence for that. Um and I can definitely see them going that way. Um, Slavia Prague, as I mentioned, are 10 points clear at the top of their league uh, and can afford to dedicate all of their resources to this to this game. Also, they now will have to, having talked that much shit. So, yeah, I think True. on paper you look at it and you think Leicester, such a good team, such a solid, consistent team this season, and Slavia Prague, although great in their league, it, it isn't as great a league. Um I wouldn't be surprised to... I wouldn't even necessarily call it an upset if you see the 11s. I'll wait to see the 11s, but like, if we see a bunch of Leicester youngsters um, and no one really from the from the first team... I, I am already, by the way, even if we're talking about like not fielding the entire team, already I'm not expecting Jamie Vardy to play. If if he plays ahead of Kalecci, he and Acho, I'll be so surprised. Um, and similarly, James Madison, because they play Villa away between these two fixtures as well, which is you know, one of the hardest fixtures you can have this season. So... I really don't see them starting all of their top players. And for me, it's just a question of how weakened will they field. For sure. I think, uh, ironically, only the only thing that would spark Leicester to decide to play a stronger eleven is getting like massively taunted on social media <laughs> beforehand. So um, if you do see Vardy and Madison going at a 150%, Jamie Vardy two-footing people from minute two... Um, that that could well be why, uh, and they'll have dug their own grave. <laughs> They've played themselves there. Um, the player I've gone to watch though is um, quite an exciting young prospect. He's been called the most exciting prospect coming out of the Czech league, um, and has already been scouted quite interestingly by both Arsenal and West Ham, uh, and has been rated with a price of fifty million pounds. Is a young player called Abdallah Sima. Um, he's one half of Prague's striking duo along Jan Kukta, and together they have scored 22 league goals in 14 games so far this season. Pretty good scoring record um, to, you know, have both strikers putting it putting them away at such a rate. Um, they've actually scored 11 each, which is really, really impressive because it shows they can be effective from either striker. Um, I think he'll be using this game on a personal level, as an opportunity to show off his talents on the big stage, maybe put himself in the shop window. Um, and if he can cause trouble against Leicester's defence, even if it is a second-string Leicester's defence, um, that'll definitely put another zero on your price tag uh, or, or, you know, make you more attractive to these foreign clubs. Um, so, yeah, I think he's one to watch. He might be one that we watch here. And much like when you saw a young Mohamed Salah for Basel do it against Chelsea, uh, a little preview of a player to come. Who knows? Definitely, yeah. And he's... um. He's a great striker. He's very young, still 19, as you mentioned, but he is really big. He's like well over six foot, 188 centimetres. So mm. a very physical three, presence. And yeah, could well surprise a side that might be underperforming due to expectations. 
That is going to do us for the European football wrap-up. But now shall we move into a guessing game to resolve it and then look at settling the score? Let's do it. So uh, I will repeat the clues that I had for you with your guessing game um, and then we'll go from there. So this player was once the most expensive Nigerian player of all time. That record has since been broken many, many times over, but in around... I won't say the date until later on. Um, at that time, he was the most expensive player from that country. He was he is the third highest African Premier League goalscorer of all time, with 96 goals across five different Premier League sides, as well as the third highest goalscorer of all time for Nigeria. Final clue is, his nickname, which is a shortened version of his actual name, is a reference to an animal with a quite bulky frame. Cameron, do you have an idea? I'm pretty sure I know exactly who this is, um, <laughs> and I got slightly thrown by your last clue because it sent me in, in a different direction, um, and the player that I'm going to go for, I'll, I'll say in a second, but the player I nearly went for from your last clue was Sean Gota, because <laughs> <laughs> when you went, you went, he's named after a player, it's part of his name, and I was trying to think of which players had animal names, and I was like, oh, like, feed the goat and he'll score Sean Gota, but he wasn't Nigeria, wasn't he, like, Bermudian, wasn't he? And I was like, I'm pretty sure he's not Nigerian. Could he have maybe been? Did he get a lot of goals? I'm not that familiar. So I was slightly <laughs> thinking about that. That's that's why it slightly confused me. Uh, Got until, you spiralling. Until I remembered that a yak is an animal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. And I was like, ah, oh yeah. Uh, and this is, of course, Yakubu, who is one of the most prolific Nigerian players uh, ever. Yeah, so... It is indeed uh, Yakubu, um, an iconic player in his time. His his time in English football ended somewhat whimsically with some taunts over his lack of um, work work rate while he was injured. Just a, there was a video surfaced of him spending about two minutes just wandering around the middle of the pitch during like halfway through a game. Um, but on his day, he was absolutely dominant, a real weapon both physically and uh, with, with goal scoring. Um, so, yeah, congratulations. If you can name three of the sides he played for, I'll also be impressed. Uh, Portsmouth. Uh, Correct. Sunderland. I do not believe he played for Sunderland. Do not play? Ah, oh, so he's... He's one of those journey. He's, he's not physically, but he's he's like one of those just strikers that plays at so many different Premier League clubs. Like I can't really ascribe one identity to him, but I just know that he probably played for like half the teams between twelfth and eighteenth. Um, yeah, for sure. Didn't play for Newcastle. He did not. Um, he played for Blackburn. He did play for Blackburn. Very nice. And uh, did he play for Charlton? Maybe. He did not, but you've impressed me with those two, so uh, well played. <laughs> the other ones were Middlesbrough, Leicester City, and oh. most notably Everton for four years. And then he also played at Reading for a, for a very small period of time, and then finishing his career at Coventry City. I can't believe I've missed that. Everton was like the, the obvious one, that's a real clang for me to miss it. But Middlesbrough, in my head, I was thinking of him in a red and white shirt, and I was like, Sunderland, Stoke, Middlesbrough, <laughs> it was... Well, well done. You have won this round, and I hope that people at home also manage to reach the same conclusion. Shall we go into settling the score? I'll blast through the ones from last week, because we had quite a tight one. Starting off settling the score, we had Leicester-Liverpool. You had guessed 2-1. 
and I had guessed 1-1, and the final score was 3-1, so you get the point there. Crystal Palace versus Burnley, I had guessed 2-1, and you had guessed 1-1, but it was 3-0, and that's unfortunately a point to you, unfortunately for me. Um, oh, God, well, it's not, not a deserved one, but one that I'll take. Thank you. Man City and Spurs, we split the difference because you went for 3-1 and I went for 2-0 in a 3-0 game, so it was a draw. And Southampton, Brighton versus Villa was uh, 2-1 to Villa. I had guessed uh, 2 oh, Sorry, I had guessed 2-1, you had guessed 1-1. That was 0-0, so that's another point to you. Uh, Excellent. West Brom versus Manchester United was a big upset. Um at 1-1, one, one, uh, and you had guessed 1-3, and I had guessed 0-2, so neither of us predicted the upset, but uh, it was, uh, both of us were equally far away with two goals, so that's a draw. Uh, Arsenal versus Leeds was not so much an upset, but it was a lot more exciting than I think either of us thought it was going to be. Actually, no, you, you had it at 2-3, so the, you had it as, a, as a, a crazy one, but the wrong way. I had 1-1, one, one, you, you had 2-3, so it's 4-2, point to you. Not looking great. Very nice. Uh, then we had Everton versus Fulham. You guessed 3-0 Everton, and I guessed 2-1 Everton, but it was 2-0 to Fulham, so I will take the point there. Um, West Ham versus Sheffield is where I'm going to claw my way back, because I predicted 3-0, and it was 3-0. Oh, uh, no. And then finishing us off is another point for you, because you guessed 3-0, whereas I guessed 3-1 for Chelsea's game against Newcastle, which was in fact 2-0. Um, and oh, that ties no. us up at 5-5, with me winning on the correct score of West Ham-Sheffield. Oh, disappointment. Real, real sadness felt. Um, well done. Well done. I'll so take it's it. a brace for you this week. The double. Um, Nearly the triple if I managed to get that third. You could, I can't believe I fumbled Everton. Oh. You did fumble Everton. So I'm holding on to that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, congratulations. Stole it at the death. Looking at uh, settling score for this week, uh, Wolves versus Leeds, what do you reckon? Wolves versus Leeds. I think, I think it's going to be two one to Leeds. I'm going to say two 0 Leeds, but I, but I can see two one. Interesting. Southampton versus Chelsea. I'm going to go for three one to Chelsea again because that's all of their games in my head. It does seem to be, doesn't it? I'm going to go two one to Chelsea. Burnley versus West Brom is the nil nil derby. It does often uh, does often go that way. I think it's going to be. 1-0 to, to Burnley and then 1-1 in the pub Sean Dyke versus uh, Sam Allardyce afterwards <laughs> uh, Liverpool versus Everton I think it's going to be like the inverse of Burnley West Brom I'm going to call it 2-2 it's going to be a big scoring game lots of drama a couple of injuries and sendings off I think I'm going to go for 2-0 to Everton I think they're going to steal Ooh. it Oh, I, re- I rate the, the call. Okay, well, I, I would not be unhappy to lose to that one. Um, Fulham versus Sheffield United. I'm going to say Fulham win 1-0. I mean, yeah, that's that's a reasonable guess. Um, I'm going to go for 0-0. Uh, uh, West Ham versus Spurs. I think West Ham are going to win 2-1 here. Yeah, West Ham often nick these games 1-0, so I'm going to go for 1-1, actually. Nice. Villa versus Leicester. Uh, is it going to be a really tight game? I think it's going to be 1-1. Ooh, two under the home side. Arsenal are going to lose three nil to Manchester City. I mean, it's the writing's very much on the wall with that one, isn't it? Uh, I I think it's going to be two nil. And Manchester United versus Newcastle. I'm going to say it's two nil to Manchester United. Yeah, very fair estimate. I mean, um, Callum Wilson's out for several weeks at this point, and uh, Manchester United are definitely coming into their own. I'm going to go for. 
4-1. Because uh, I think Newcastle might still nick a goal. See, I, I nearly went for a really, really high-scoring like United pounding here, just because I thought, yeah, Newcastle have been really, really bad, and missing Wilson, who's sort of like the one spark they have in a lot of games, um, is really going to harm them. It, like, it's kicking a team that was already down. Uh, but I'm just going to keep it to 2-0 for, for this game. Uh, and then Yeah, I hear up, you. I think that the one um, redeeming feature they have is that um, they've got this great young player coming through in Joe Willock, who he is looking really strong and dangerous. Um, so... It, he he would be my guess for if anyone was to to get a goal. You're you're one to watch in this this part. Um, and finally wrapping us up with Brighton Crystal Palace, I'm gonna call that a one-one. Yeah, entirely reasonable. I actually think Brighton are gonna nick this. I think Palace are not doing so hot right now. Uh, I'm gonna say two-one to to Brighton. Well, that's all of the results for next week. Uh, Rupert, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. Cheers, guys. Bye. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.